It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. That day the guards came to look at the scratches, they also felt out Ian's story. This was still just five days after Sophie's body was discovered. They asked Ian the same questions they were asking everybody. They had a checklist. Questions about Sophie. Did he know the deceased? Ian had a nuanced answer. He didn't know her, but he'd seen her once, from a distance, back when he was doing work on her neighbor's garden about 18 months earlier. But did he know her habits and haunts, anything about her movements from that weekend? He had no idea she was even in town that weekend, didn't know the woman. Where was he on the night of the murder? Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and my continuing discussion with Jim C. about the horrific murder of Sophie Toscan Duplantier. Now, we left off talking about unconscious utterances and leakage, and I expand on my interpretation in this episode. You see, there's still so much more to deconstruct, and I'm sure you formed your own view. Or maybe what Jim C. and I say may make you think twice about things. Well, let me know. So let's jump right back in where I left off. Yeah, and the lack of empathy, to me, actually is what jumps out across all of his interactions. And I see this sort of vicious side to him. I see, and we've heard it in a couple of the interactions. And for Jules, I just want to go back to Jules for a minute, which is, you know, watching her and having interviewed thousands and thousands of victims. And I'm saying victims because most of the time they're still going through it. Her minimization and her rationalization and her... You know, she says, oh, it's the alcohol. There's a nice person that's in there. He has a childlike response, a childlike temper. I feel I'm hearing his voice when she's saying these things. I don't feel that's her describing him. We both drank too much. She constantly puts herself in it as if it's half a dozen of one, half a dozen of another. And she even says herself, he needs more self-control. In other words, he's impulsive. So these flashes, and there there is a scene right at the end which made me feel very uncomfortable where they've had the French trial. And uh, first of all, I think it's Jim's on the phone, Jim Sheridan. And they had spoken to Nick, but it's Jim Sheridan they're talking to. And he's telling them that, or telling, first of all, Ian Bailey, who's clearly in drink, that they found him guilty. And Jules is off doing something else, and he's already shouted at her once. 
then he calls her over and Jim is on speakerphone. And rather than him get up and get her a chair, he just tells her to pull a chair over, which was interesting to me. But it's actually when she jumps on the phone and says, oh, hi, Frank, she thinks it's the lawyer. And he goes, no. And he pulls his hands down. He goes, no, it's not Frank. And you see this flash of anger. And then you see him reset to, oh, you know, and he laughs. He says, oh, it's actually Jim. And he turns it, you you literally see the switch go. And she just kind of is there on the edge of her seat. And I felt so uncomfortable seeing that reaction and just the way that he quickly thinks back on his feet. Hang on, I've got a camera on me. It's a tiny, they're tiny micro uh, expressions from her. But I feel she's really uncomfortable and she's micromanaging herself because of him. So I don't want to discount the violence towards Jules or that it's in drink. I can tell you 99% of victims who I talk to, they tell me, oh, it's only when the the person drinks. And then when I go through the power and control wheel and I'm time date stamping when the violence and abuse happens, it's pretty much all the time. Maybe the physical act happens in drink, but the control-related behavior happens all the time. And I see that from Jules. I feel very uncomfortable for her. And he says, oh, it's to my eternal shame. My eternal shame. I've never heard someone say that, but he's not apologetic. He doesn't at any point. He just minimizes it himself and puts them down. This is where we hear it more in the Netflix show and also in the podcast. He says, well, Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, you know, they, when they drank, they would have a spat. And he kind of puts it in that, well, everyone does. It's it's so normal. It's not normal. Yeah. And when you see pictures, I have one photograph of her, two of them actually, but it's of the same event where he had hit her in the face and she's got a black eye. She's very bruised, but he's pulled out a whole clump of her hair, like half, literally a third of her head is bald from where he's pulled out her hair. He violently attacked her. This is not anything minor, but it's more the control. Yeah, it's not a spat. And it's more the control-related behaviours that bother me the most, seeing them on camera. Even though Jules says she's not scared, she's uncomfortable. She's not a woman who is living her best life with him. So 11 people. And I think the other person you alluded to was Richie Shelley, who says that he said, I went too far. And he confesses after they had been out. And that was the couple... And they did end up giving evidence at the French trial. So again, why would you say, you know, at least 11 times to people, anything to do with A, the case, or B, anything to do with your involvement in it? If you're completely innocent, why would you even joke about that and show a complete lack of empathy and a callous disregard for the, for the victim? That, that doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, well... I mean, especially if you know that the police are looking at you, making incriminating statements, only make it worse. But if you are actually a killer and you want to sort of brag to some people or your inhibitions are lowered because you're drunk, you might leak out information like this. And I I just... I don't see there being any legitimate reason for him to be saying stuff like that. I don't see it as humor. I don't think he saw it as humor when he said it. Nobody who witnessed any of these 
confessions, thought that there was any humor involved. And and I think rightly, everybody saw it as him literally making confession to this horrific, horrific murder. What are your thoughts, Jim, about the about Jim Sheridan filming him so much when clearly he's either drinking or has been drinking? I mean, there there are clear scenes where he's just ranting, he's got these crazy hats on, and he's drunk. It's all attention-seeking behavior. I mean, you know, he's the drunk part of it is I think he is an alcoholic, and I think that it, it affects him and it it does lower in his inhibitions. We see him uninhibited. And I think the the incident on the phone that you described where that switch flipped and he got really angry at his wife. And I think that's the important thing. His wife, her behavior triggered him. This anger and rage came out into him, then he had to control it. And he's capable of doing that. And that is also a characteristic of psychopathy. The recovery, the the quick to rage, but the quick recovery. The normal people, when they get enraged, it takes them a long time to come down. It takes That's something that lasts. But with psychopaths, they're able to do things that are outrageous to normal human beings. And right away, just step back into normalcy without the, you know, the heart rate pounding through the roof. So... That's that's just one more indication there. Um, you know, he he was charming, charismatic, persuasive. He was very much uh, concerned about his image. He changed his accent because he didn't want to be seen as a particular way. He had multiple marriages, and all these things that I just mentioned are on the psychopathy checklist. I don't know what his childhood was like in terms of did he get into trouble? Um, I, he 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 was not. Um, well, did he uh, did he have a prior criminal record? Didn't he have one prior like violent assault? I can't remember if he had a violent assault. He was certainly his sister spoke out and his family said that he was quite different from them because he was really into drinking, kind of into the rugby scene, just very different from the rest of them. But his sister does say that he was very into his image and he lost his northern accent. He worked on losing the northern accent. And when he got together with his first wife, Sarah, she was from a very well-off family. And he was sort of, she doesn't say he's punching above his weight, but that he had done very well for himself. And then the whole relationship started to disintegrate. There's no real detail on what happened. And I'm very curious about that. But that's why he went to Ireland and with Jules, they never got married, but they were together for 20 odd years. And she actually finished the relationship in April of this year. So after filming had completed, etc., she then separates from him. I'm very curious about what she might be saying sometime after they've separated, but I could understand why she did separate from him. Her whole life has been wrapped around him in this case. And I think there's one very interesting scene when it's her seventh, I think it's her 70th birthday or it's, it's, a, it's a milestone birthday and he just gets so drunk and he's just singing incoherently, acting a complete fool. 
she's clearly just used to it. She just kind of is chatting away to her daughters and to other people who are there for her. But it's such a sad indictment. And I think of very clear what's going on in their relationship. So it doesn't surprise me that she separated from him. But I'm I'm not sure about criminal convictions. Uh, he's clearly very self-absorbed at the very least. Oh, yeah. Well, talk about ego. He said, I never met the likes of the detectives that were interrogating me. In other words, they were very different, right? They were unusual. I suspect they'd never met anyone like me, you know. They've probably been dealing with less educated people. I mean, he, he, the ego and narcissism just, just shines right through there. And, and it's all the time, you know, and his poetry was so egotistical and, and just spouting off in the middle of a, of a bar or even on camera, you know, just spouting off this poetry or sitting in the middle of a park or in, in the town and, and just being a, you know, just a, a weird, you know, just, I don't know, like caricature um, who who's just craving attention. Yeah, I mean, the poetry was so bad. Uh, what I will say about Ireland and local pubs, etc., people do just get up and do spoken word or someone bursts into song and they've got a guitar or whatever. That does happen. But he was okay. just horrific. I mean, I'm I'm sorry, he just had no talent at all. But clearly <laughs> that was something that he was hankering after, wasn't it? Being a poet and being known for being creative. And unfortunately, from what I could tell, he didn't have much talent. But it is an important point just about the poetry, because we do see him break into it and try and be this very, uh, I think he tries to be mysterious, you know, this long black coat and has this wooden he carried a wooden stick with uh, him, apparently, and then got rid of the, the wooden stick after Sophie was killed. But I do think it's interesting because there was right at the end where we hear from Sophie's best friend who gave evidence at the French trial. The best friend says that Sophie was contacted by a man who said that he was a poet. From Westcourt. Yeah, in Westcourt and wanted to meet with her, but she didn't know who it was and didn't know if they met. So there's some suggestion there that perhaps they did know each other. And Alfie Lyons also says, he's the neighbour who lived up the, the hill from Sophie, he said that he did introduce Ian Bailey and Sophie. So although Ian Bailey denied knowing her, and remember the exact phrase that he used, two people say differently. Right. And although they were never seen together, I think it's very important that two, her best friend and Alfie Lyons both said, mentioned a poet and Alfie Lyons said that he did introduce them. And there, Alfie Lyons, I think it was Alfie Lyons, someone said that he originally had said that Sophie was very attractive. Later on, he says he doesn't, he, he didn't pay much attention because she was very plain. Even that distinction of the, the denigration, or I saw her from the window, I think he said, but she was plain. I, she would never have caught my eye because she was so average. It, it's a departure, isn't it? It's a very small thing. But why? But why yeah. denigrate her? Yeah. Why do that? Because he's trying to create distance between him and her. Clearly, when he says, I never actually met her, I didn't know her. I was, she was pointed out to me. We never actually met. Again, distancing. So, yeah, it's a, it's, it's disturbing um, how, you know, how he treats her 
post-death, post-murder, post-brutal murder. And it's also very telling that when the when the investigators went to his home, there was there had been a fire in the backyard that a trash pile was burned, a mattress was burned, um, boots were burned, clothing was burned. Why? When a guest took a shower in his house, she found a bucket filled with a an overcoat that had been soaked. Was it soaked in water or bleach? I don't know what it was, but it was soaking in the shower. And, you know, why? Why in the middle of the winter when you can't really hang something like that, a heavy woolen coat, out to, to dry outside in the middle of the winter? So what was the purpose of that? Why did it need to be cleaned? I mean, certainly, why did something need to be burned in the backyard? Yeah, I mean, again, I don't know if that's a normal thing to do. The neighbours said not, and they, they believed it to be December time, but you hear Jules say it was probably earlier than that. So there's no real time frame for it, but it does seem to be unusual. And then it's Ariana Barina who says that she was staying with them and saw the dark clothes that was in um, a bucket. She doesn't know what the clothes were exactly, but I agree with you. In the midst of winter, why would you do that? Jim Sheridan also frames it, and we did talk about this last time. He says and shows a forensic report that said that a black coat was seized by the guarder. But we talked about it before. He may have multiple black coats. There's... Or it was seized it was seized after the coat was cleaned, or that the coat that he had at the time was burned and he got another coat. I don't know, but he could have cleaned it and then burned it because it didn't, he could have tried to clean it, but something didn't come out. So he decided to burn it. And then he got another coat. I mean, we know another case where uh, a red sweater was, uh, was turned in later and it was a brand new red sweater. It wasn't the red sweater that the person had worn. So, you know, he might've had multiple dark coats. Hey, lovely. What's your makeup go-to? What do you need to face the day? Now for me, if I apply my eyeliner, my brilliant eye brightener, mascara and red lipstick, I feel ready to face anything. But I know every now and again, I need to zhuzh up my makeup. And my amazing sponsor, Thrive Cosmetics, has a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look. With clean, skin-loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. Also, Thrive Cosmetics' Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are homeless. Now, if you want to wreck from me, you cannot go wrong with the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara has a unique formula which creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. And they use nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger and healthier looking lashes over time. Plus, it's super easy to remove and slides right off with warm water and doesn't leave smudges. So treat yourself or someone you love and help women thrive together. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics luxury beauty that gives back 
Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crimeanalyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crimeanalyst for 10% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Well, that's an interesting point, Jim, because the black coat, according to the report that that was put on screen that Jim Sheridan showed from the Garda, it was February the 10th, 1997, that that coat was seized. So it's not immediately no. at the time. No. He could have, I mean, how hard would it be to get another coat? Yeah. And this is where, for me, Jim Sheridan later. has departed from an independent look at the case because he very clearly now starts to frame it across the series that DNA under Sophie's nails did not match Ian Bailey. Ian Bailey gave samples willingly and freely and the black coat that they that so much play was made about of um you know just disappearing he puts up on screen that a black coat was seized by the guards and makes out you know seized again around two corruption. And a half months later that's ridiculous yeah but i i think here is where you start you start to see a turn across i think it's episode 3 and then four and five, there's much more of a focus from Jim Sheridan around Ian Bailey and the framing of the guards being corrupt. Even though we hear that his libel trial, he loses it against the newspapers and a judge actually says he's a violent man and found in favour of the newspapers. And Ian Bailey also lost his complaint for wrongful arrest against the Garda. And, you know, I just made a note that I felt that up until that point, everything I'd seen, even if Jim Sheridan's trying to show us and show the type of person that Ian Bailey is, I just feel he's performing and acting all the time for the camera. And therefore, even with that, we're not really seeing the true him other than these moments where he's on the phone about the, the French trial, where there is an immediate reaction. And what's interesting in that, I, I just want to, I know I'm running over time with you, but there are a couple of points just in episode five that relate to the the trial, you know, we're seeing it in real time, but he has a pre-prepared statement he's already written out, Ian Bailey has, and he's trying not to show camera that he's looking at it, and he goes into poetry again. So the only couple of moments that we see the real him, it's not good. You know, first of all, he's sort of triggered by Jules, even though it's something so innocuous. So what? She gets the wrong person. She thinks it's Frank, the lawyer. Well, he didn't really tell her who was on the phone. Why get so angry about such a small 
minor detail and she just kind of jumps. But the fact that he then says, well, she says, oh, it's what we expected. We expected there was no defence for for Ian. We expected that to happen. While she's talking, he's looking down at a piece of paper. And then he takes the, the speaker back and then he starts to recite kind of poetry, like this kind of poetic response to what's happened rather than just talk normally. And I feel like he's just trying to, again, give off this... Yeah, this very different persona. And he's clearly been drinking. He doesn't pull the whole thing off. But then we also hear from Jim Sheridan, who talks about the DPP, the Director of Public Prosecutions, not charging Ian Bailey. And he he even calls it the, the, the Bailey case. Jim Sheridan does on camera. He d- he now no longer calls it the Sophie case. By episode five, he's talking about the Bailey case. Wow. But the DPP, I would like to talk about that. I mean, that's just outrageous. To make a decision based on your assessment that the credibility of witnesses that you never talked to is just asinine. What he should do is take that when you're when you're deciding to prosecute or not, it's sort of like a probable cause hearing. You should take all the statements that are made at face value and decide whether or not that would make a case. You don't tear down each of those individual witnesses and perspectives and and assessments and say, no, this one happened too long. This one they waited. They they didn't have enough for that. What? And just c- cut it to shreds. That's just not how it's done. And so I have, I have a feeling that that person either had an agenda, or was somehow influenced to not prosecute that case and to come out and say after a court of law convicted him. No, we will. We have. We're not going to consider prosecuting him. What the fuck? Why? It's just you didn't. You didn't hear the evidence. You weren't at the trial, and and you didn't evaluate those witnesses. That's for the jury to decide, not for you. And that's just wrong. He only looked at it on paper. He did not evaluate those witnesses. Really pissed me off. I mean, what did you think about it? I think it's a an astute observation because what Jim Sheridan does is sort of say this is now about the French system versus the Irish system, which I didn't feel that's what it was about at all, actually. No. Yes, we know the French system is different, right? It was three magistrates. It's on the totality of everything. The jury don't hear. Well, there isn't a jury there. Ian Bailey didn't have a have a defense. I mean, that is problematic that there wasn't a lawyer there, but that was his choice. And there was probably quite a lot of evidence. The Irish did give them, or the Garda, I should say, did give them access to the case file, but we don't know whether it was everything. But on the totality of what was heard, they found him guilty. Well, some might say, well, that was always inevitable. But you've got the libel case where the judge finds not in favour of Ian Bailey, finds in favour of the newspapers. You've got the complaint against Ian Bailey Sorry, the complaint Ian Bailey makes against the Garda for a wrongful arrest that wasn't found in Ian Bailey's favour. I don't know all the evidence. Ireland. Right. You know, I, 
I don't know all the evidence that was heard in those two cases, but then you've got the third trial in France. You would like to think that there would be a criminal prosecution where the totality of everything is heard in front of a jury of peers and they can make their own decision. And I I think you're right. You know, we do have a lot of cases where it's circumstantial evidence. There isn't one physical piece of evidence. And I've worked on those cases. I know you have too. We've had cases where there's no body, no body found, and we've still had successful prosecutions. For murder. Yeah, for murder. So I don't really know the detail of why the director of prosecutions would say, because there's no physical evidence, we didn't prosecute. And is that we will never prosecute? I don't know. But I think it's uh, a missed opportunity for sure. And I hope, if anything, these docu-series and the podcast do create pressure, along with Sophie's family, to push for a criminal prosecution so that it can all be looked at, the totality of it together. And I mean, Jim Sheridan does make the point that he feels that Ian Bailey has, he kind of characterises him as the victim at the end, which, you know, he's never left Ireland, he's stuck in Ireland, he's been there the whole time, this has been hanging over his head. Oh, what a victim. Yeah, the the problem for me was the the docu-series says it's murder at the cottage, the search for justice for Sophie. You know, and what what struck me, because I've just had a conversation with Amanda Knox, and I haven't shared shared this with you, Jim, but she said she listened to our episodes on Real Crime Profile about Meredith Kircher's case, and she said the most notable thing was that we never mentioned her until right after we'd looked at crime scene and we've, you know, done everything that we possibly can, and then we have to talk about her because she becomes the central focus. But for me, Jim Sheridan seemed to lose sight of. And I don't know why he got so into the whole Ian Bailey narrative, but the family did pull out. They did not want their interviews to air because they felt that he had become so biased towards... Ian Bailey. Now, we don't know if then that means we see more Ian Bailey because he doesn't have enough material or whatever that choice is. For me, by the end of it, I just had enough of hearing about Ian Bailey. Yeah, well, but it's so ridiculous for him to make a statement that he's he's a victim in this case. I mean, that's what Ian Bailey says, you know, that he's a victim. And that's just absolutely that pity party is absolutely inaccurate. The fact is that he drew attention to himself, his behavior, his lack of an alibi, his his very suspicious behavior, his statements that he made to other people, the scratches on his arm. I mean, his the 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 locating of the of the crime scene very quickly under, you know, weird circumstances. The fact that he he knew information that the police did not release, whether he had another way to get that information, I don't know. But clearly, these are guilty-looking things. Soaking of the coat, the burning of the clothes and bed and boots, lying about his alibi, confession to multiple people, lying about, apparently lying about having met Sophie. I mean, it's just these are a lot of, of very troubling pieces of circumstantial evidence. And in... American courts, it's completely fine. And again, what I'm pissed off about is the DPP who 
who literally made assessments of the credibility of witnesses based on paper, not on actually interviewing them and then making that assessment. You can't make that kind of assessment on paper, and he shouldn't have. Yes, and I'll also just add into to the laundry list that you created there. I also had that when her son was making a, a an impassioned plea to the people of West Cork because of the French trial that was upcoming for them to go across and, and to give evidence, Ian Bailey talks to camera. He doesn't mention Sophie's name at any point. He calls her the victim. And these little moments of just distancing uh, are interesting because we don't hear any real empathy. He, in the pre-prepared statement, he does talk about her family, but it's written down. It wasn't from the heart. It wasn't, and I just feel devastated for them. You know, there wasn't any emotion. He was just reading off a script and performing. And the, the standout phrase for me is when asked whether he knew her, I didn't know her in as much as I had never met her. She was pointed out to me. I didn't kill her and have no knowledge of the killing. Well, that's not true. He was the one writing about it when other people had no knowledge about it. He was the person who was claiming knowledge, no sexual assault and so forth. He says, I'm an innocent man. He's literally, I feel, ticking things off. And they yeah. sta that stands out to me. And it's very uncomfortable viewing. I have to say, like I said, normally I love to be able to see someone, watch them in all different circumstances. But I felt Jim Sheridan gave him too much of the microphone too much time on camera to the point he was directing him, you know, towards the end, he's directing him. And really? yeah. And the same in the podcast, you hear Ian time date stamp stuff. So that when Sam Bungie and Jennifer Ford, who again, you know, are not investigative journalists dealing with crime in terms of their profession. And so it's the first time they're dealing with someone like Ian Bailey and, you know, yes, they do a very good storytelling piece in the podcast and the detail, but the direction that Ian Bailey keeps giving is really uncomfortable. At no time does he ever seem to be the one being directed. And that tells us a lot about him and his personality and actually his levels of manipulation and persuasion. Yeah, absolutely. So you had come down on the... Given the totality, given all the, the, the clear points that we know that it's much more likely to be someone local, someone who's impulsive, someone who became enraged, someone who didn't get what they wanted, someone who someone would discredit history of violence to women. Yeah. Somebody, somebody who likely was drinking or using drugs or stressed to the max to lower his inhibitions and built up a fantasy targeted Sophie the victim and and not targeted to murder targeted to most likely have a sexual encounter because he had built her up in his mind hey it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels so whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
Much the same way Ian Bailey built her up in his mind as this promiscuous woman who had all these men come to her cottage. So he just wanted to be one of them. And he saw her as a, you know, as a loose slut in his mind. And of course, when I make a play for her, she's going to go along with it. And I think that that is likely the scenario that devolved when he knocked on her door late that night. Um, To me, that's the most reasonable conclusion I can draw from all this evidence. If there's more out there that I don't know, I'm happy to hear about it. But right now, based on all the facts and based on what happened in court in France, um, yeah, I think he did it. And I think he couldn't help but telling people about it. The leakage. Well, Jim C., it's been fascinating talking with you. I know I've run over time because whenever we get into a case, we really get into it. There's so many interesting parts to this discussion. So unless there's anything else that you want to add. I just feel bad for Sophie's family and her son in particular. It's just terrible, you know, unfortunately, you know, that anybody has to suffer the way Sophie did and and to fight so valiantly and then to have that be the last thing she ever did on this earth is just terrible. Yeah, I think that's a really good place to end because we have to remember there's still a family that feel that French law hasn't been respected in Ireland and 24, 25 years later, they still want justice. And I think that's a a great place to end of hashtag her name was Sophie Toscan Duplantier. And I hope we've shed some light on the case and some of the key behaviours that, that people have been asking about. So thank you very much, Jim. And if anything further comes to light, I'm sure I'll be asking you to uh, jump back on and discuss it. All right. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. It's a shame we're not talking about something happier, but uh, these cases, it's a cold case from many years ago and it needs proper investigation. And I think that that analysis has been really helpful. So thank you so much for your time. And to my listeners, please always remember until next time, be curious, ask questions and always trust your instincts. Well, what are you thinking now? I bet your mind's racing, right? So you hear where Jim C. lands, and I still have more to say, weighing up other significant factors in the case, which I'll detail in my final analysis next week. So join me back in the intelligence cell. And as I said before, until then, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instinct. And here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. The first is a huge thank you to all of you, my lovely listeners and crime analysts, for tuning in every week. The second is an ask. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review on whichever platform you listen to me on. It really helps others find me and helps with the ratings. So thank you, thank you. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Tim Hansen at Half Ogre Studios. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate. And music by Kilrood. Hold up. 
Thank <laughs> you.